Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. This is the Oasis, a whole virtual universe. You can do anything, be anyone, without going anywhere at all. The Oasis was created by James Halliday, and what he left behind changed everything. A contest, three impossible challenges. The first to finish gets complete control of the Oasis, which means 
complete control of the future. Can we take it together? Sure. You made it. We're all here for another episode of The Film Board from The Next Reel on Rashpixel.fm. We spoil movies, and tonight we are all spoiled in advance of Ready Player One because we all read the book by Ernest Klein. Is that right? I'm right about that, right? Everybody read it? Yes, Yes, sir. Yep. Okay, good. So we all geared up this week to go see how Steven Spielberg could bring it all to life in the theater. Well, Well, now... That's a new concept for me because I've never thought about the fact that actually if you go to a book that you're actually spoiling yourself on the movie. Do you guys does that count as a spoiler? <laughs> no. No. No? If you go to if you go to the end of the book no. and read it first, right. then I but guess. But doesn't everybody always say that you know the movie's not as good as the book? JJ, everything comes from the Bible. And so if there's a spoiler, <laughs> then the spoiler alert is done. I don't know. I love spoilers, and maybe you all do too, because that's why you join us here. So go and find out more details about this here show and all of its sibling shows about the wide world of cinematic entertainment at thenextreel.com. Uh, also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at The Next Reel. But the real way to support all of the commentary and creation at The Next Reel is on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash thenextreel to get access to our show's awesomely active discord channel and our sweet sweet love and appreciation you can join our interactive movie thuggery for as little as one dollar a month you guys remember when coffee cost a (laughs) dollar nope nope nobody does neither do i i'm just saying that it doesn't cost very much uh, at all to buy our friendship and that's what i wanted to talk about so uh we all knew the book and we all know the movie now so even though you people out there may have already heard some of these voices in the conversation we just had you may not know us personally so let's introduce our host tonight so my question to start us off is what pop culture presence from the 80s do you miss the most andy nelson you mean, do I miss from the movies yeah. or do I or like from this movie in or just in general? What do you miss about the 80s? Anything? Uh, I, I miss the, uh, yes, the, the uh, going to kids movies that were kind of like the Goonies where they were uh, a little rougher, I think. Oh, you know, there's something about them that had a little more edge to them than you don't get today. That might play into our conversation. How about you, Tommy Hansen? <laughs> do you remember the 80s? I do. I was literally going to say the Goonies. <laughs> Ah, it feels like see? that kind of <laughs> a bunch of kids go on an adventure, but it's a little, I mean, they would, if you've watched the Goonies recently, they swear so much. They are constantly swearing. Yeah. It was just a different time. <laughs> and there's something about that that made you feel kind of, hey, they talk like me and adults and all this kind of stuff. And there's there's actual real peril involved. Uh, so I'm going to also go right. with the Goonies because I cannot pivot very fast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and how about you, Steve Sarmento? So, the 80s. Yes, the go. 80s. So the, I was born in 1970. So my nostalgia for the 80s is really limited to the first chunk of the 80s and for me it's all about the choose your own adventure books where you could read a book and you could come back to it and take a different path and read that same story like 20 different times to try to find your way to get the best ending ever and it's one thing that i had wished they'd been able to work that in there because for me that's like pre you know like hyperlinks and internet stuff and, <laughs> and video games where you like reset and restart, you know, and save your game and go back. Cause I remember reading those choose your own adventures and I would put my finger in, yes! and say, if you want to go to this or this, and you're like, wait, wait, I'm going to put my finger here because if, if I'm going to peek at that page and I see I die, I'm coming right back here and say, no, 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 I'm going the other way. <laughs> my favorite right. thing to do after way after I'd finished the books is go back and just read all of the bad endings. 
All the ones where you would get right. caught in the haunted house or get floated out to space or whichever one it was and just like wow. die over and over again in rapid succession. I don't, that doesn't make me a creep, right? Okay. Well, <laughs> that's not disturbing no, at all. There's an interesting thing out there on the internet now where they actually show maps of the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Ooh, and you can look up and see a visual representation of the, all those different paths. So that might wow. be something for you to check out. I'll, I'll try to find it and see if I can get a link to it. Maybe we can put it in the show notes as well. My name is JJ, and I was eight in 1984. And I'm personally just disappointed that there isn't a more safe space for me to stage my impassioned debate about the differing value of vehicle Voltron versus Lion Voltron. You guys have any opinions about Voltron? <laughs> No? Which one was Voltron? Voltron a bunch is of, back. A bunch I'll of robots come and make one big robot? Yeah, that's okay. right. You, Andy, you said that both are bad? No, they're back. Oh, they're I, I, exactly. my, my son has Voltron oh. characters in his room. Yes, and it's actually crazy. Netflix yeah. brought it back, so that's super cool. Yeah. And there is a place where the debate exists on the internet. It's kind of like one of those deep web Reddit things, but I'm using the microphone here to try and bring it up to the mainstream because that's <laughs> this is the option. I'm a big vehicle <laughs> Voltron fan, uh, but you know the one that kind of lasted here in the States was Lion Voltron. So anyway, that, that I just think there's a lot of interesting stuff for us to fight about regarding how we feel about the difference stuff in the 80s and more importantly for tonight how the decades deification in ready player one worked for us thugs so let's talk about the movie what are your initial thoughts steve sarmento so it's easter weekend and steven spielberg delivered a giant chocolate easter bunny to us it's mouth-watering to look at but then you realize it's hollow on the inside and because it's all empty calories you're craving something more substantial about an hour later for me, this was a movie that was grounded in 80s nostalgia, but lacked the magic that made those movies from that decade special. Or maybe I'm just a grumpy old man now. <laughs> <laughs> Hollow inside. That's interesting. I think... Um... I think the hollowing interest, uh, the hollowing perspective might be interesting as we talk about this movie. How about you, Tommy? What do you think of the movie? Well, I mean, this is so much of this movie is the definition of fake things jumping on the back of fake things and fighting fake things, which is never my normal forte. That being said, at times I felt pummeled by the movie. At times I felt motion sickness. <laughs> and at times I felt absolute giddiness by the imagination and the detail of the work involved. Uh, I ended up... Once I sort of leaned back and realized what his overall aesthetic was going to be, while it had plenty of problems for me, ultimately I had a really great ride. And I think that's sort of where I it exists for me is a really fun ride that I don't need to go on right away again, but I had a great time. Well, that's cool. That's 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 glad good that the ride was good for you. How about you, Andy? What did you think? I I had I I it's tricky. I I did have a lot of fun watching this movie. I I feel a little bit like Steve. You know, it was a little uh, kind of empty calories, but I felt like that's kind of what the story was. You know, I, I I had read the book. I knew what I was kind of walking into, and and I had a really fun time with it. Did I love it? No, but I really enjoyed it. And it's certainly a movie I can watch again and enjoy again. I. I think it's just one of those that I think is going to hold up as just a fun, uh, entertaining movie that uh, does its job. And I think there were some changes uh, in the adaptation that um, that I think made it work better as a cinema experience. I think some of the stuff would not have worked at all uh, the way it was written. So I really appreciated the work that they went into this. And I really appreciate the work that the team did of 
really kind of creating this oasis with all of, I mean, so many references throughout. I mean, it was just insane. Like it, you would take, you know, days just doing still frames, trying to catch them all. I mean, it's just insane. And I, and I just really appreciate that. So I, so I had a really fun time with it, but uh, yeah, I do kind of agree with Steve. It is, it is a little bit uh, kind of a, a hollow, empty experience. Yeah. And I think it, I'm, I'm really glad that you guys were entertained for it. Ultimately for me, the movie was kind of a letdown. And I think, you know, we talked about it a little bit in the intro. I feel kind of spoiled by the book because I was really coming in wanting to get the feeling the feeling of nostalgia that, you know, there's been a, a healthy debate about on our Discord channel about whether that kind of nostalgia is actually valuable when you're bringing together a new movie. And I think that, Andy, what you're talking about, the ability to separate um, from how you felt about the book and then also from taking a look at the different medium when you come into making a film and figure out the way to make the movie a, a good movie. I, I It was really hard for me to get there because I was so... I was so missing what I wanted to see in the book. I, I have two comparisons in terms of film board work um, that uh, that I think is interesting to to bring up when we talk about this. One of them is Valerian, where you talk about in um, the the city of a thousand planets and all the different worlds that went into making Valerian. I actually liked Valerian more than this movie, um, but again, I didn't know the source material, so maybe I wasn't spoiled there. The other one is The Dark Tower. And I've compared when I'm talking about this movie to people, I compare it a bit to The Dark Tower because really there was a whole, so much speculation coming into the, the Dark Tower about what part of the Dark Tower series that movie was going to be. And when you came to the film, you really noticed that it wasn't necessarily much related to any of the books. It was just the idea of the, the mythology. And that's something that they carried into Ready Player One really well, right? They have the mythology of the original story with the Oasis and with this sort of Easter egg hunt that Halliday has created for these characters. But outside of that, all of the set pieces are different. There is, there's not an existing set piece from the book that gets trans, translated into the film. And I think that goes to the point that you're making, Andy, about how they decided to change it up to make it a good movie. I, for me, it was just really hard to divorce myself from the, the love that I had from the book or from even just the feelings that I had about the book uh, going into the movie. So let's start with that. Let's ta start talking about those set pieces because I think that is kind of interesting. Um, I think the big one to talk about first is the shining sequence. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's my well, favorite. first of all, you, I love well, it. Well, and it, I mean, for if you like horror, you're going to love it. But I <laughs> totally identified with the character of H, right? Like in the book, all of these characters that are in the high five are also well schooled on Halliday and all the different things that he does to set up for this Easter egg hunt. There would be no way that one of the characters in the book wouldn't know that The Shining was super important to, to Halliday. So it's really interesting that we come to this. And then I'm a I have never seen The Shining. I don't want to. And especially now. Now I think I'm going to be terrified about it. But uh, and the other thing is that I so I was I was scared and I wasn't really schooled up on it. So I didn't have any of that nostalgia. Tommy, talk about what you loved so much about that scene. I loved the fact that when they threw out, I mean, because a lot of the book is would literally be watching a character playing an old school tabletop video game. Living in it. Or or lip syncing along with the entire movie of The Breakfast Club, like things that, as has already been said, would would be cinematic disasters. Uh, but for him, I really like that Spielberg, who we know, of course, with AI taking over AI, he's such a Kubrick fan. A lot of the kids that see this movie probably haven't seen The Shining and it's not on their right. radar at all. <laughs> and I think for him to say, nope, we're going to school y'all for people that know it and love it. It'll be interesting. I think a lot of people 
that haven't seen it, like the younger generation, he's introduced an entire new world of cinema to potentially uh, in that they would want to know what is this? What are all these crazy visuals about? Uh, because for me, who is a Shining fan, when they walk through that door into the actual uh, lobby of the hotel, I got shivers when it was the actual footage oh, cool. of the woman in the bathtub that he then over. Oh, that's the original footage that then he overlaid. She because when she gets out of the tub before she turns in to be a real witch creature, she is naked and walks towards uh the character Jack Torrance, but he uh, Spielberg covered it up with H's arm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's really smart. I just, I thought it was thrilling. And then to go insane once they're outside in the hedge maze and then having, because there's no JJ, just so you know, there's no, she doesn't pull out a knife. There's no zombies. There's none of that in the shining. Is there, is there the, 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 the blood waterfall? Yes. Oh yeah. Yes. Oh. That is iconic. <laughs> well, you say, oh yeah, like I should know. Like, and this is an interesting point, right? About this movie. Like we talk about if Spielberg is going to introduce the shining to all these people, I think this is actually relevant to the discussion that we're having to on discord about the concept of nostalgia being important because there is a whole generation of people who probably read the book, ready player one and wasn't particularly interested or didn't know the significance of the events that were happening for the set pieces in the book. So it brought a new sort of perspective for me in watching the movie because I don't know anything about The Shining. So I was like, and then when they started saying that the zombies weren't real, I was like, oh, so what of this is The Shining and one of it isn't? I didn't know. And if you, I think, I would like to think that if you were more privy to horror as an option or something that you like, which a lot of people do, you would want to dive into The Shining because totally. of seeing this movie. Totally, that makes See sense. See what's real and what's yeah. not because so much of it is so such a loving tribute and then like a video game adaptation it goes completely off the rails in a way that was really fascinating to me that's great steve and andy did you guys have the same feeling about the shining piece i i loved it i thought it was a really fantastic addition that uh that worked so much better than what was uh, in the book um and it was done in a way where it was it was really it was really scary i mean i i brought an 11 year old and a seven year old to it and walking, and all of a sudden, when 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 they mentioned this, I'm like, oh, this is not going to go well. This is just not going to go well for me right one now. For dad. Uh, and, <laughs> well, but but what they did is it because it's definitely scary. And and my my daughter was sitting next to me, and she was you know, kind of clinging to me through pretty much that entire sequence. Um, and uh, and I said, don't worry, it's just from another from a movie, and and you know they're just playing it out. And so she was fine. She was kind of like H. I, I think that the thing that I really appreciated is that that even though they're kind of recreating these scenes from the shining and, and reliving it out um uh, spielberg and his writing team imbued it with a sense of comedy still by having us kind of you know living vicariously mm-hmm. through h as yep. she's totally freaking out almost like an audience surrogate. and so there was a yeah. slight right exactly so there's this slight level of comedy in there that uh that i think helped and and even though it was scary for them it was kind of like haunted house scary you know and especially when the um when the the old lady brings out the axe and and turns into a giant and starts slamming it into right. the, the stuff i mean then it just kind of goes off the rails but it was a huge jump scare for my daughter when uh when you know h is totally freaking out and then the axe comes like through the door yes. right behind her mm. like that was a great great jump scare and it's just they it, spielberg they they took all the stuff from the shining and they turned it into something that was just 
such a beautifully done set piece. And uh, and even for kids, it was done in a way where I, I was just so gratified that it was not over Agreed. the top scary. Did you, Andy, when she when your daughter was clinging to you, did you lean over and go, honey, don't worry. It's just an old movie about a father that goes insane and tries to kill his entire family. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't come up. I was just. And then I gave her the best. My just my, my best Jack exactly. Nicholson smile. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I well, that's good. Yeah, I, I, I was thrilled to see them using The Shining because I, I, it was just this like love letter to The Shining from Spielberg to see that footage being reused. What I was paying attention to was looking at the places where they veered from the novel and thinking about why they made those changes. And I thought the way that they took this and tied it into the main theme of Halliday and the the love story uh, with Kira and all that. I thought they they made choices and they they made them in a way to really make a through line in the plot because the the story the novel is so much of just Willy Wonka type you know with. Uh, story with 80s references and here i i looked at how they were making those uh those decisions to make changes in service of a larger story of focusing on halliday and what's sort of at his core of who he is why he created the oasis or, or what it is that defines him so i appreciated that what i did find was that that made it a bit more of a challenge to then once you veered from where the novel was going, how do you get back on track? And I, for me, that's where this plot sort of struggled because we kept tr- having to come back to the main story of Parsifal and Sorrento and all of that. And I, that's where things fell apart for me because they just couldn't quite weave all of that together. There was so much stuff to bring together. The movie didn't feel like it was two and a half hours long, but I still feel like they shortchanged so many things. In this film, I, I really wish this had been like a four or five part miniseries to really get into this this vast uh, story of characters, the rich environments, all of that. But I, I did like the changes that they did make from the novel. I think they they made smart choices. They just didn't have enough room to get everything in there. Yeah. And part of that shortchanging is a little bit unavoidable when you come to the screen. So so I, I'd like to give a little bit of grace about that. I think the parts, the, the things that you guys are mentioning here, especially as as fans or, or people who are knowledgeable about The Shining, I think it, it, that, that's really insightful and actually a, a bit profound to think that uh, that Steven Spielberg came to this and he took the sort of the the mythology or the philosophy of nostalgia and then wrote a nice sort of clever love letter to one of his favorite directors. I think that's that's kind of special. That makes me feel feel really good about it and and feel really creative in a way to an approach a movie like this. The the question that I have about like bringing up that kind of nostalgia is this is this the same kind of hatred as people attached to having old movies that everybody loved remade or rebooted and stuff like that. It feels different to me a little bit. This movie does because in general, they're assembling these things. I mean, you talk about the the creative thing that, that Spielberg did with The Shining here. It's not just making a new Shining with a whole bunch of new actors and new technology. It's actually integrating it into a story. So I, I guess the question that I have about this is, is the hate that we're seeing from the people who don't like nostalgia uh, just the same as saying, I don't want to keep seeing remakes. I want original ideas. Or is it something different? Because this is a, a, a different way to innovate with old 
great old ideas. Yeah, I mean, this is an original idea. It's just incorporating a lot of old stuff. And it's it's about people who are kind of living through this world that this guy created and all of this stuff is in it. Um, I, It's a tricky thing, though. I, you know, I don't know if uh, what the line is there as far as, uh, you know, is he... Um, is it is it really going to be that different? Like, is the is that kind of the hater nature of that stuff? I mean, I'd like to believe that hating just kind of like a, you know the Ghostbusters remake or RoboCop remake or whatever it's going to be. Um, this is different. I, I but I feel like there is something about projects that are dealing in nostalgia uh, right now. Maybe it's just because it's become so common that this is still some of that hatred is still spilling over into this could it be a reaction to the fact that brand recognition hollywood believes that that's the only way to make money uh moving forward even though they're proved wrong over and over again um but could it be seen uh from fanboys as that it's like a bunch of it's well it's kind of like the sorrento version of a bunch of older white men taking something that belongs to us and we love and getting it wrong and trying to sell it back to us. And therefore it seems it comes across as pandering. It comes across as condescending and something like this could get lost in the, that kind of whirlwind. If people are feeling like you're trying to, uh, commoditize. Nope. It's not a word. What's the word? Commoditize. That's a word. I'm going to sure. say mine. Commoditize uh, the uh, something <laughs> that we love that is a part of our culture and trying to, you know, just really slight it and then sell it back to us in a way that even though you don't understand it, in the way that Sorrento needed all of his quote unquote geeks in his ear because he didn't know what the high school was and Breakfast Club, all of that. Is that a possibility? Well, one of the things that got to be a big fight on our Discord channel was about the movie posters that were used to promote the movie because it took a whole bunch of old, specifically 80s movies and then added the cast to the cast of Ready Player One to it in the same sort of styles. And there were some people who felt like that was pandering and there were some people who felt like that was uh, that was really cool and a really clever way to go at the movie. I would argue that I have a completely different take on it now after I've seen the movie because I feel like in general the movie doesn't really spend that much time with particularly 80s nostalgia. Um, I feel like it was more of just a marketing campaign to say this is the philosophy, this is the theory, this is the creative idea that built this story and so we're going to market it this way but then you're going to come and see this movie that we created that really was you know spielberg or or the the movie treatment of how to take that philosophy and put it together on screen so i don't think like it was pandering but i can see their argument when again like there were no breakfast club references in the entire movie were there did I miss uh, one? The, the names of the high school. Yeah, the high he school. He was trying to right. uh, quiz Sorrento yes. on it, and Sorrento only got it right because of his geek squad. Right. Gotcha. But no, I think that all the people that were complaining, I think if they actually see the film, they will find, like you just said, JJ, it wasn't like that. It wasn't just re, it wasn't vomiting up something that we liked and trying to put a new bow on it. It was really repurposing it, and of, and at times really in a loving, smart new way except for when h is like i'm just practicing mario kart i mean like there were a lot of toss away <laughs> lines that were that weren't i mean it wasn't it wasn't consistent i want to agree with you but i just don't it didn't do it for me unfortunately some of that stuff sounds like old people writing for young people like that's not how young people would talk <laughs> yes i agree well what's interesting is who they brought on to bring this book to the screen so you've got ernest klein 
working on the screenplay, but you also have Zach Penn. And if you go back to his first produced screenplay, it's Last Action Hero. Okay. Which is dealing with the same thing of the kid going into the movie. And so, again, you've got that sort of twist on nostalgia when you've got movies that are sort of self-referential and and it's all the inside, you know, geekery jokes, things like that. So if Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't Arnold Schwarzenegger, but a character and he goes into a video store, you know, Sylvester Stallone is starting in all the movies that we know are Arnold Schwarzenegger starting. So it's, it's, it plays with that nostalgia and familiarity. So I saw the same thing sort of going on here of taking those nostalgic elements, putting them in a new context so there's that familiar reference point, which is, to me, can work for entertainment value, but can also be used, I think, to shortcut emotional connections to things because you're you're drawing on all the associations that people have with those things. So you, you can just imbue a scene with a certain feeling because you've got that piece to it. For me, the, you know, the, it was done a lot with the music uh, when... Uh, Parzival pulls out his Zemeckis cube and we get the musical cues from Back to the Future before he unleashes that thing just brought a whole wave of, for me, memories and what I associate those little sort of chimes with. It just it just was overwhelming of like, oh, my gosh, this everything's coming together in a certain way and it can work really well when executed properly and i think it did it there but there's other points where i think you know for like jj he has no association and that's the risk you take because for me when i think of the shining i think of you know elevator you know unleashing a tidal wave of blood and i think of two creepy girls standing in the hallway those are the sort of iconic memory touchstones a lot of people have with the shining so it's perfect that that and the you know jack nicholson coming through the door clearly we couldn't get the rights to jack nicholson for this movie so they, right. they dealt with the other two things. But that's the risk you take is you, you're either t- reaching out to people and, and really tugging at the heartstrings or it's a complete miss because they don't have that that reference. And so I think that's the the risk that a movie like this takes is you can really hit them head on or you're going to miss them completely. Well, and I think that how they made those choices were really interesting. I think the question that a lot of people had coming into this, especially for those of us that have read the book and everyone on the podcast has, is how they were going to go about getting the rights for all of these different oh, references I can't and how they would make choices. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like a, a, only a person like Spielberg attached to this could get it done because how many of those people that they're making calls to are going to say, uh, no, you can't take this property because I know you won't treat it right. But then they say, well, Spielberg's directing. Oh, oh okay. Here, you, give me $13,000 and we can make it work. Did he have an army of lawyers in charge of trying to clear all these rights? I would think that that would just take forever. <laughs> I can't imagine doing that kind of work. Reading about it, they they had a, a lady named Deirdre Bax, who is a, the special uh, project supervisor. And uh, producer Christy McCosco Krieger, they spent years <laughs> working on securing all the really? rights. Really, it really for was all years. Of the stuff okay, in here. that's yeah. what I would have thought. It was Holy years cow. that it said. Um, and uh, I, Ultraman was in the book. Uh, there, there, there are a couple that I was confused or I was wondering about. Ultraman was big in the book, and I guess the the character of Ultraman happened to be going under a big legal dispute while they were trying to do this so they could never get Ultraman oh. and so they replaced Ultraman with Iron Giant. Oh, okay. It's oh, a better choice for me. Yeah, I I thought so too. Um the other one for me that was uh, um a little perplexing is the music from Rush that is so uh like constant oh, constantly right. mentioned in the book. And it's in the trailer. And and it's in the trailer 
And but there's not a single track from Rush in the entirety of the film. And that was a a big perplexing one for me that like what happened uh, when they're getting to this point? Did they why did they decide to drop that and just kind of go with I mean, a lot of other great 80s tunes, but I I couldn't figure out why Rush was left out. But um, yeah, it's just amazing. And and looking through the list of stuff that they that they did clear and uh, just even a small sense I mean, it's just insane how many things that they cleared for this. Well, well, and I thought some of the current references were interesting. And I, and I, I on first thought watching the film, I was a little bit frustrated with it. Like, I, I was kind of being a fanboy, a purist as I was approaching this film and thinking, like, Iron Giant, Iron Giant's from 99. Why would, why is this with all this 80s thing? But there's no reason to be a purist about the book when the movie takes place in 2045, because of course, things that came out in 1999 are going to have the same sort of reverence, maybe not exactly the same, but you're going to have that sort of thing. And then they have all the Overwatch heroes, right? All the, the from the first person shooter from Blizzard right now, Overwatch has Tracer is in it constantly. She always shows up as one of the the fighters and things like that. And they have lots of different uh, video games that are, you know, almost Minecraft world. Right now. <laughs> yeah, Minecraft world. Halo. These are things that, yeah. So it, they almost, yeah. Yeah, they they made these things a little bit more current, which again it speaks to what you guys are saying. In the, like, let's not be purist about it. Let's figure out what actually is appropriate based on the mythology. And that tripped me up when I was approaching the movie. But it makes sense when you think about the world building as a whole. I appreciate that kind of stuff because I don't know. I mean, I feel like with the we can talk about how he handled huge battle scenes and trying to spot different creatures and stuff with cinematography and things like that. But I really feel that I probably recognized maybe a fourth of the uh, references going on. Yeah. There are so many things on screen. It's, it's nigh impossible. You know, you need to freeze frame it all. Right. Yeah. And, And that's, yeah, we can get to that. But that's an, that was an interesting choice of how he, when he got all of these rights and cleared all these rights, that it was so much of a wash in the big fight scenes that the camera was moving so fast that for me, it was weird. Like I had trouble sometimes concentrating on the actual action. Cause I was like, was that a gremlin? Who was that? Who's that person? <laughs> I recognize that from halo, like one in 15 things. And then a bunch of anime people walk, walk by and I'm like, I have no idea who any of those are. Uh, but um, that was an interesting choice of like, if you actually get the rights to all these things, it's filmed fake filmed in such a fake whiplash style where you're just running so far. And then you get like a, fo- a focus on Chucky, for instance, from child's play, you get, he chooses just a couple certain things to really, um, and uh, Master Chief from Halo, there's like five of them that get involved with a firefight. But do you think that maybe it was a thought that people will want to rewatch this and freeze frame and try to pick things out because it's so frenetic during the big fights? I found it's possible. <laughs> I found a, a site and I'll put this in the show notes, too, uh, that that lists the illusions Ooh, in there. And it's just neat. it's. It's so huge. It's so long. And it's not numbered. I wish it was because that would be shocking. But I mean, there's stuff that like, did you know that they referenced the Zapruder film from the JFK assassination? I I missed that. There's there's (laughs) tons. I mean, there's. They talk about Midworld, so they talk about the Dark Tower series. They talk. I mean, I could just pick out from anywhere here that they they talk about Planet Greyhawk from Dungeons and Dragons. They talk about. uh, They have Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in there someplace. I mean, there's there's lots of different things that it's impossible to catch. So that job that those two women did for so many years, it it was un 
unbelievably sophisticated and difficult to coordinate that. And that alone should be looked at in this film because it's got to set some records for that, right? I mean, you, I, I would assume so. I mean, I, I yeah. I, I, and t- to your point, though, Tommy, I you're right. I mean, it's it's almost overwhelming how much stuff is in here. But to that to that end, though, I mean, this is like an insanely brilliant uh, job of world building. And sure, you, it's it's impossible to figure out everything as you're watching it. But at the same time, it's all there. And it's just like this amazing just lump of just just create crazy numbers of characters from all these different projects. And it's building this world to just show you how expansive it actually is. And to, and to that end, yeah, I, I'll never be able to you know pinpoint all of them, but they're all there. And I, I really appreciate that. I guess I would have just liked uh, sometimes I thought he with some of his fake and I, I keep saying the word fake because it's always things that take place in the Oasis. But so much of the filmmaking was so fake swirling around and we can get to the uh, I guess I don't know if we're going to talk about the Love Leap uh, party. Uh, where they're swirling around, oh, swirling around. Right. He does that the zombie dance. He party. does that sure. sort of new. No, not the no. zombie dance party. The one, the dance, the ball. Yeah, the, right. When, oh, they, when they the get it, he tells her his name. Right. When in the book, that's a birthday party, I believe, for Simon Pegg's character. It's not here. Here, it's just a club that they meet at. But there's just so much swirling around, swirling around, swirling around. I could have used a couple, like let's just hang the camera there for a second and let me sort of like Lucas would do. And let me be like, hey, there's Yoda and there's a bunch of people that he put in later because he doesn't know how to leave his films alone and things like that. That would have helped my (laughs) instead of just seeing it. It felt like I was just sprinting by a bunch of things. And if I had a chance to look at it, maybe I could have enjoyed that stuff a little bit more. I definitely feel that way. Uh, I mean, that the, the, the camera motion, I mean, we haven't, the interesting thing is that everything we've talked about the movie right now is, is about the conception of the story and the way that they treated the idea that's there. Um, you know, when we start getting into how the film works and how making those choices actually was executed for the film, I, I think there's a lot to talk about there about whether they did the right things in the way that they, they they made the movie uh, more than just the way that they chose to tell the story. Well, to, to Tommy's point, I think what he's saying about visually of not giving us time to me, that was the same issue I have with the story. We're moving from <laughs> sequence sure. to sequence, from plot point to plot point that we don't have enough time to settle. I don't have any connection to any of these characters. There's no time to develop any chemistry at all between Parzival and Artemis. There's, you know, so I just, that's why I can't come back to it's hollow because I just, I was entertained. I couldn't believe it was two and a half hours long, but there was, everything was just like pressure cooked, you know, like Instapot film. It was just like, boom, boom, boom. Let's get through all this because we have to get through these points. But there was, there was so much telling and not enough showing the whole exposition at the beginning. We've got all this backstory about this whole, you know, history of the quest and who these people are. And the problem I had with it was you're just telling me things and there's, because visually there's so much going on. I've got visual information that I'm trying to make sense of. And you're giving me information about the story and characters at the same time. I'm having trouble knowing what to prioritize. Is this important information you're telling me or important information you're showing? Because it's two different things at the same time. And 
neither of them to me had any substance. And I just, I coasted along for the ride and I had a great time. But when I come back to thinking about what is this movie trying to tell me? What is the story? There's not enough of anything there for me to to pin anything on to say this was an important story of substance that had something to say. The book didn't have anything to say. They tried to get (laughs) something to say with this. I think because by the time we get to the end, it's about it's more important to connect to people in the real world versus online, I think is what they were trying to say. Maybe I don't know, but because it moved so fast, there was no time to develop any through line or, or theme or point to the story. It's a good point. That's that's part what I meant by when I said I felt pummeled by the film. Yes, sometimes. Right. Yeah. So I want I want to ask a question about that, and this is jumping down to the production a little bit. But I had this as the film went on, I started to get this creeping suspicion that some of that, some of the lack of the through line, and some of the pacing, including some of the jumping from scene to scene, especially in geographic locations, was part of the homage. And this is and this goes to a really weird. And I want to ask you guys about this because I want to see if you felt this way. And this goes to a weird point that Tommy made to me years ago, long before we started doing this podcast, about a movie uh, that lots of people remember for being horrible, and that's Showgirls, right? (laughs) And Okay, so the point about Showgirls that Tommy made to me these years ago is that it got to a point where the camp was realized in the film, and so they went full out and just went for it. And that it was actually brilliant in the way that they were exploring the camp of that concept as opposed to trying to make a traditionally perfect film. So I started getting this creeping suspicion when we were watching this movie that it really felt like I was watching the roughness of something like The Goonies. You guys talked about this in your, uh, in your, in the intro, in the initial thoughts. When, at the end, when all of a sudden they are all sitting at the truck and all the, people from the stacks are are sort of closing in on them in applause in this sort of like really thing that doesn't happen in real life but we were bombarded with stuff like that in the 80s right of these things when people came to films or you think about a movie like the karate kid the reason why i bring this up right now steve is because you you talked about the fact that there wasn't really a through line and we all have this memory of these movies that we grew up on that that we kind of created the through line for us but if you watch the karate kid now the original karate kid it's super disjointed and really broken and really strange like that so i don't know if they were doing it on purpose but even if you look at the scenes and the way they were shot in real life it felt like sometimes things were shot with some like fuzzy focus and that the the camera quality was a little bit uh lesser than we're used to seeing in the movie and i started feeling like i was being duped into an homage for the sort of broken films that we watched in the 80s did any of you feel like that at all i'm sure spielberg (laughs) if he listened to this podcast he'd be like yeah yeah, that's what I was going for. <laughs> because I think that this movie, for me, no. I, I really like what you're saying, JJ, because one of the things that, uh, when I've been, had writing partners and stuff, uh, for trying to create movies, one of the things we always say is when we go back and watch older movies, it was so much easier back then. <laughs> the way right. we were able well, to, we didn't get, care. Yeah. It would just be like a guy would come on screen and it would just freeze frame and it'd say like in a crazy font, Carl. And then give you like three elements of <laughs> three elements of his personality. And you'd be like, yep, I'm on board. And of course, none of that is okay now for storytelling. I can't in my heart think that that was actually a plan to go through. I think this movie was instead kind of all of the care went to the Oasis scenes. And this movie was also cut to the quick. 
because it was already running long. Uh, so that's my personal oh, feeling is that they yeah. had to take away if there was more finesse. But the idea of everyone coming out and clapping and everyone being there in the same time to have a character say, hey, everyone in the world in the movie, meet us at X. And then they do. And then the cops and everyone and the lawyers are there. That is actually really Goonies and old school where everyone just shows up on the beach. I mean, that is right. interesting. Like, how did they right? find it? <laughs> I love that idea. If that was on purpose. It's just hard for me to divorce that from laziness now. And so I guess I just wonder if maybe Zach Penn isn't the most nuanced writer. He might actually think this is fine to do. Well, but to Steve's point, he's been writing this kind of movie since he was 23. His first movie was Last Action Hero. And if you look at his credits, he's listed in all these adaptations of how to bring other source material to film. You know, obviously we don't know, but I think, you know, another scene where that happened was all of a sudden when when he's kidnapped by the rebellion and he wakes up and all of a sudden this character that was shrouded in mystery for the whole time as they're leading us in through the Oasis, she just introduces herself as Artemis. And it's just, it's like a a slam, it's like a slam into the story. Like, welcome to the rebellion. Okay, here's this character now. It just, it felt so 80s to me. And this is me like trying desperately to forgive the story because this kind of stuff I hated in the movie. But I was thinking, that's a lot like the Karate Kid. That's a lot like. (laughs) I think, I think one of the reasons, and I'll stop, I feel like I'm talking a little bit too much and I apologize. But uh, one of the reasons that I have also trouble getting through that is even through the 80s, Spielberg was made that feel real to Steve's point about this feeling hollow. He made those scenes, he made them work and he made them have resonance. And this film didn't have those. That's what makes me feel like it was just sort of a, unfortunately just lazy or a cheat to just go right to exactly what the audience needed. But I love your thoughts about it. Well, and you know, I I apologize for bringing up your uh, obsession with showgirls, but um, you know, Paul Verhoeven Verhoeven is a genius. (laughs) But that's a good place for us to go with this. So if if we're if we if we're going to discount that possible theory about like let's make it so bad it's good, um, which of the characters did feel real to you? How did you feel about uh, Ty Sheridan in his lead role here as Z Parzival? It's it, it's tricky because I mean I I really like Ty Sheridan. I think he's a, a really great actor, a very enjoyable to watch, and it's been nice seeing him just kind of get better as he's gotten older. Um, I, I think he worked for the most part here, um, but there's so much of it where you're watching him as Parsifal, uh, you know, kind of the, the CG creation of him where it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I guess I never really got emotionally connected to any of the characters in the film. Um, but I mean, I enjoyed him enough. I, I thought it was interesting that they actually were trying to cast an unknown for this particular character, um, but they, they could never find anybody they were satisfied with. So they finally settled on Ty Sheridan. There but, was no, yeah. no Daniel Radcliffe that jumped out of anywhere for... Jumping into the role of Parzival. I I agree. And maybe we need to talk about um, these types of roles as voice acting. I I don't know. When was the last time we did that on on the next reel? Never on the film board. Well, I mean, I I think there's probably a lot more than voice acting. I'm sure it's all the, you know, the little mocap, you know, they're all covered in in the stickers. Yeah, they're doing all the mocap stuff. Do you think Um, they did mocap? So I think there's a lot more to it. Oh, oh, sure. Absolutely. Really? Oh yeah, I mean, there, the, the, there's so much acting going on with all these characters. I'm sure it was all mocap. That's cool. That's that's a concept that I didn't. I just assumed that it wasn't. Well, knowing that Spielberg also is, uh, you know, very much uh, kind of a you know buddy with Robert Zemeckis, who's been known for 
all the mocap work that he's done. And Spielberg did The Adventures of Tintin, which was uh, mocap. I mean, I think he does a lot of really great. Uh, I mean, he understands the tools, and I think he he made great use of them here. Motion capture cool. has become uh, because it's become so much more prevalent. It's actually cheaper to do that than to try to create a CG character that's believable out of whole cloth. It's better to actually wow. have those kind of references on an actual actor uh, and then have a computer make it beeps and boops. Interesting. That's that's a huge well, it's it's probably not a new shift, right? But it's a shift in my thinking in the way that I look at graphics and the way things are done, especially if it is coming from motion capture as opposed to um, to artist and artist rendering. Uh, so we talk about those characters, I guess, then maybe they were a little bit more real in the way that they were doing their, uh, their digital references there. Um, the way they interacted, uh, with each other. How did you feel about that? Uh, Artemis and, uh, and Parzival's relationship. Was it believable? In, for me, ironically, the guy who doesn't like fake things and fake things, I found all of the stuff in the Oasis between the characters captivating. And I didn't feel that way in real life. Yes. I. It was the complete opposite of what I normally feel. Exactly. I'm right there with you, Tommy. It was like you got you got these two actors in a room together and there's no chemistry between them at all. But somehow they they had a more lively relationship in the Oasis, which to me seems like it's the, the problem is that's so counter to what the story is trying to say because their <laughs> relationship is the, the, the online fake relationship is more, feels more real and true than in real life. Those two, because I got nothing between the two of them, even the point at the last shot of the movie of the two of them sort of like <laughs> snuggling in that chair. It's like they're, they're kissing. And then she, it's like there's this like weird, awkward tension between them. I'm like, this does not feel like either of them is comfortable with this at all. I was like, how about you get on a chair in the Oasis? <laughs> eh, yes. Uh, you guys exactly. look a lot. You guys just look better and act better together in the Oasis. And you're probably spinning around oh on gosh. a chair in space. Yeah. Yes. The, the, <laughs> the one performance that worked really well for me, the, and I don't know if it was intentional, was Ben Mendelsohn as Sorrento. I don't know what it was, but he... Throughout the movie, he reminded me of Richard Vernon, the principal from The Breakfast Club. I don't know oh, if it was his. I don't know if it was his horn. hair. <laughs> yeah, there was something about that performance. I thought he's just channeling that character, but it it fit so perfectly for who he is of the guy that's trying to connect with the kids, but really can't and he's trying to talk their language and he's just in a different <laughs> world altogether it was i don't know if it was intentional or not but i just kept getting this richard vernon vibe off of him but it worked well that was the one thing where I'm i thought cracking skulls that, exactly yep. <laughs> i yeah ben mendelson i think has just been doing such a great job of playing bad guys yeah in films lately I, I really enjoy watching him and like the the weird fake teeth that they gave him that made him kind of talk yeah. a little yeah. awkward yeah. Uh, it was it was a strange choice, but I, I kind of liked it. There was something about uh, just uh, all the elements of his portrayal that I think uh, worked just really well. Um, I, I mean, I, I enjoyed Ty Sheridan and Olivia Cook. Uh, you know, for the most part, I think I have to agree with you guys um, that they, they seemed to work better in the Oasis than uh, than outside the Oasis. And it's it's frustrating because I, I enjoy both of them as, uh, as yeah, performers. Agreed. But um, it kind of. Yeah. 
But you're I, maybe you, maybe they were directed of, that way because that's what yeah, the film. Possible, no, yeah. I'm joking. I, I'm actually trying to bring up my old point <laughs> about the fact that they didn't have chemistry, so they wanted them to have more chemistry in the Oasis to make a point about society that we're getting no, right. Just, the way. <laughs> I, I will say the, the the relationship that I really did enjoy watching on screen was Simon Pegg and Mark Rylance. Yeah. Oh yeah, as uh, as uh, Halliday and his his uh, former partner, I, I loved all those little scenes. First, I loved the way they shot those scenes. I loved the uh, just the the way that that relationship played out in in all those kind of videos, and uh, and then just just uh, the 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 quiet moments that uh, we had with Simon Pegg right at the end. It was just it was really just a touching way to kind of see that relationship play out over the course of this. Simon Pegg in that very last scene after they're getting out of the van and he just has I mean, he has like five or six sentences. That was the most emotion I felt in the entire film. Like what a superhero to be able to do sort of his lip quiver when he's talking about how the most important thing is to not lose a friend. I just thought that was I was like, oh, Spielberg's back. Right. Yeah. Like, this is the Spielberg that I usually have where you can take small moments. The movie is fine to sit for a second and really have some resonance. But I thought, yeah, I agree with you, Andy. I thought that uh, Simon Pegg was great. And Mark Rylance was really, it's a really brave performance uh, to be so spacey and so non-showy and almost, I think, I mean, it seems like he's somewhat on the spectrum. Potentially. I don't remember if he was in the book at all, but I really love I thought they were the two that really shine the most in the movie. How about the comedy that was mostly delivered by uh, T.J. Miller and uh, and uh, Lena Waithe uh, on uh, opposite sides. Right. Um, you have H, the character that uh, is is a little bit of a, a scam in that uh, she's a big monstrous beast in the in the virtual world. And she's uh, she's not as monstrous, not as scary in, in, in person. And then you have T.J. Miller, who we don't get to see in real life, but he's a crazy skull bodied hitman um they're both delivering a lot of the comedy in the movie how'd you guys feel about that i enjoy the the characters i i thought they they uh they treated them well i i struggled a little bit with with h's voice i mean the whole gag about you know thinking it's a guy the whole time and then revealing oh no it's just this uh this uh this woman uh it was like okay uh you know i i i really liked the reveal in the book um, here I just felt like it. I just I struggled with the way that they did the voice because it sounded so artificially modulated and, and kind of yeah. It was like it was like sometimes. Bane, but yeah, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. When Bane in the opening of that Batman movie, yeah. where I'm like, am I supposed to be understanding what he's saying? <laughs> if he's saying anything important, <laughs> we have a problem. <laughs> uh, but I mean, they are fun characters though, and I, I think that's where the movie works really well when you just have kind of a lot of this fun sort of stuff and so to that end i i you know i i find it very easy to fall into you know just enjoying characters like h and irock because they're they're there just as part of the entertainment I yeah think. I, I think irock i mean th- that was the issue i had because i know that's not a character in the book so i i was really interested in who who the real who the real person is behind behind IROC because we get to see everybody else, all the featured characters, we get to see them and we never get to see who IROC was. And then as I thought about that, you know, after watching the film, I thought, well, that's too much work to have to do because really the character of IROC is just a plot device. He doesn't really, he's, he's there to, you know, do certain things to move the plot along, but he really has no, 
he doesn't need a person behind him because there's there's nothing there to him. I mean, it, it's it's T.J. Miller. He's he's fun. Uh, you know, he's a very recognizable voice, and it's like, yeah, that's that's who it is. Uh, and I was entertained by him, but when I came back to the story of he's this sort of mercenary character, what's who's behind that? Because so much of this is about the contrast between who people are in the Oasis and what they are in real life. I felt like they really dropped the ball on that one of it would be interesting to to see who that person is that's really pivotal to the whole battle that's going on. Well, and that plot device really gets us into the crux of the oh, fake right, things. Real quick, Friday. JJ, if I can yeah. j- jump in real quick about TJ Miller, just going conspiracy theory wise, I was always assuming we will see him in deleted scenes. TJ Miller has become more of a controversial figure. As of late during the Me Too movement, is there a chance that maybe there were actual scenes of T.J. Miller doing things and Spielberg decided to take those out? So we just hear his voice. Oh, Ooh. oh, that's interesting. I don't know. I don't know if yes. that's I, I'm I'm just follow, you know, chasing a theory like a hound. But it's uh, what chasing a theory like a hound. That's not a phrase. Uh, but I mean, he, he is he is a he is a <laughs> controversial figure and being dropped out of Silicon Valley and stuff. Um, it's just a possibility that maybe That's just enjoy his voice, but let's not bring him into this family friendly. They're family. reshooting his scenes with but Kevin they, Spacey. I think that's what we'll see is there'll, there'll be a Kevin Spacey <laughs> version. I mean, not, not Kevin Spacey. Dang it. Wrong joke. <laughs> Christopher. Although, weirdly, that made it funnier. Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer. Dang it. Uh, I think they'll I have think to throw Kevin him Spacey into Deadpool 2. Also. Yeah, he's still yeah. in there. Yeah. Um, One quick note. Irock was in the book, Steve. He's just. Uh, he was? Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a big talking character in the uh the chat room where they all hang oh, out uh, but yeah. he's he's not really a prevalent That's character. Right. Yeah, they right. just gave him a major okay. makeover okay. here. Well, and if we if if we dismiss the conspiracy theory and we think about that, you know, he is the exclusive fake thing character in the in the movie. Um, you know, we had this we had a little bit of a debate or at least we we went down the rabbit hole a little bit in in Black Panther talking about which was last month about how we as old fuddy duddies have a problem with fake things fighting fake things, but the next generation or the kids that w- are going to see these movies are so uh, open to it that it's actually exciting for them in a way that we can't really understand. This movie, for me, it's a lot like you said at the beginning, Tommy. This was the most fake thing versus fake thing feeling that I ever had, and I felt the most uh, disconnected from it in that way too. So I'm hyper aware of the fact that. You know, other people are going to see this movie and not feel the way I did. What can we do as film audience members to do a better job of accepting that this is the way that things are going to be in the future? And how do we get excited about watching, you know, that spin cam stuff or following the the the, the scene that we talked about in Black Panther is them fighting each other on their way to the ground as they fall, right? The fake thing fall. Uh, that kind of thing. How yeah. can we do a better job as film watchers of getting excited the way that the rest of the world does? Get off my lawn. <laughs> well, I, I here here's my opinion because I I don't have as much of a problem. I, I think the the issue is that it's it's just a technology that is still in development largely. And I mean, if you if we talked to people back in the 30s when they were watching some new special effects, um, after they I mean, initially they're like, oh, that's just amazing! Look at that giant ape on the top of the Empire State Building; it looks so real. And but then after they've seen it for a few 
you know, a few other, you know, half dozen movies or, or, you know, several dozen movies, um, they're, they're probably at the same time, like, oh, this stuff just looks so fake. You know, when is it going to start looking better? Uh, you know, I just can't buy into it anymore. And it's just one of those things where it's, it's this constantly developing technology. And I think as, as it continues, it's just going to, it's going to get to a point where you're, you're not going to notice. And I think, there there might be a place that we're at right now where we've seen so much of it. It's just so prevalent in all the films that we're watching because of the types of movies that are just so popular right now that we're seeing so much of it. And, 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 and because people like to see it and they throw it in there and it, it works in context of good stories. Uh, but sometimes the stories aren't as good and then it really becomes noticeable. But as the technologies continue developing and you just you'll, you'll hopefully stop noticing that as they go on play with new toys and it'll still just fall back to as long as the story is good. You just aren't necessarily going to notice that stuff anymore. I love what Andy just said. And to uh, repeat something that I've said before, uh because these new toys are new toys and they're going to be moving on just because that the same thing that I used to say about the Hobbit, just because you can doesn't mean you should. That I think that once you get over, hopefully directors will continue and a lot of directors really are. And Marvel is so much of Marvel, like the Russo brothers and stuff are using these abilities, but in a grounded, smart way, just because you can send the camera on an insane matrix like spin around people but that's not giving you anything there's just a lot of real estate it's not giving you actual and a move forward in the fight or an interesting new way of looking at something my hope is that also while the audience jj i agree needs to while old people like us need to evolve that also filmmakers need to evolve and say okay here's i can do x y and z let's make x but really interesting in a new way that's my hope is what they will use these things for that. And what you're saying about this movie in particular, it, it, there wasn't a whole lot that they, you know, they had to do so much in the digital realm because it's a virtual, uh, it's a virtual geography for the, the bulk of the book, the bulk of the source material. So there, there was a lot of it that they had to do. So there wasn't a whole lot of uh, Y and Z that they could pull out. They actually had to do a lot of it, that, but there were things, you know, spins and things like that were indulgent as well. Um, so, you know, yeah, I think I think your point is well taken that um, is, as long as we choose to do it creatively, it's a good thing. And Spielberg said this was the hardest movie he's made since Saving Private Ryan. Really? Because just the 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 quantity of the the visual effects and all the technologies and all the meetings with ILM and everything, just trying to really map it out. I, I can I can understand it. And so I think to that end, even even a director like Spielberg having a difficult time making a movie. I mean, inevitably, we're going to have some stuff that we uh, end up struggling with a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. Moving on to the music, uh, someone mentioned here that they heard the Back to the Future uh, yeah, theme the when twinkle. they used the Zemeckis Cube. Uh, yes. I didn't hear that. Several oh, yeah, times. No, they also, they also so use great. that in the trailer. I know, Steve, you don't watch trailers, but they use that as the button of all the trailers for the movie. Ah, which yes. was no, sweet. Alan Silvestri did this, the score and he did Back to the Future. And I've been listening to the the Ready Player One score today. And there are... you. As I'm listening to the different tracks, I'm like, oh yes, here I'm 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 getting that Back to the Future feel because we also have the DeLorean in the the car chase. So there were to me, yeah, yeah, when it wins yes, the race, there was a lot cool. of that 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 came through, and it was interesting to see how much of Back to the Future there was in here because again, that's not I know Spielberg's associated with that; he didn't direct that, but that's I think the most Spielberg 
presence we get in the film because there's not a lot from because hmm. I know he intentionally tried to keep out as much of his stuff as he could, although the crew members kept trying to put things in. Um and there's an interesting article in Entertainment Weekly about this that you know, once they got in the digital realm, it was really easy for them to start sneaking stuff in. When you're on the practical set, it's real easy for them to say, now get that, okay, get that gremlin out of here. We're not putting that in the shot. But when it's your computer, they can just start dropping stuff in. And I think there's there's stuff that got snuck in. But his goal was to not make this so much about the things that he had already created. So that was, so we're not the only ones that didn't catch all of the illusions. Oh, no. the director probably uh, missed some of them. Too, oh, I'm, I'm sure. Maybe that's <laughs> yes. why the camera's moving. So gosh, darn fast the entire time is because they're just, don't let him see that. Yeah. Like the girl in the red dress from Schindler's list is like out there on the battlefield. <laughs> She's in the too soon. All right. uh, <laughs> well, I, <laughs> Tommy's joking, but that... it's probably in there somewhere. I'm sure she's out <laughs> on the battlefield running around. Running around. <laughs> that, that's such a strange homage. I don't know. Um, another thing that made it hard for me to watch the movie is that my theater experience was super terrible. Um, I, I don't know why. I, I saw it at my local theater. It's the place that I always see it. But it's something that's really important to me and jumping from the music thing is music cues. And in particular, the Van Halen jump music cue and the uh, BG Stayin' Alive music cue were just quiet. It's almost like they were background noise. It's it, The way it sounded in the theater was as if the people on screen were listening to it, as opposed to it being the emotional, effective thing that it was. So all the sound was just a wash in this theater for me. And you know, it, those earlier weird comments that I was making about the quality of the, the resolution and stuff like that, that also could be because of my negative theater experience. I haven't had this kind of negative theater, theater experience in probably more than 10 years. And I was surprised at how much it colored my opinion about the movie. It made it feel like the, the movie was kind of weak and and not really as as good as it could be. Um, so what what were your guys' experience like? I, my theater wasn't packed, but everybody everybody was laughing a lot. Did you guys have anything particularly interesting about your theater experience? We had uh, we saw it um, at the six o'clock show in IMAX 3D Friday night and there was probably 30 people in the auditorium which just I was flabbergasted that it, you know opening night there were so few people in the auditorium I really couldn't figure it out uh that being that aside uh, the the picture the 3D quality was spectacular nice. I had such a great ride in the 3D realm with this film everything in the oasis just it just really lived perfectly in 3D, um, everything from just you know the entrance to it as you're flying through everything, to the shining bit, uh, to uh, just all of the stuff, the big climactic uh, battle, it was just really spectacular in 3D. I had a blast with that, and the sound quality it was really great. I mean, it was a really well designed full world. So uh, I would say definitely try to see it again in you know in an IMAX screen or a Dolby Atmos or something where you get a better sound quality than you did. Okay, I I saw it in Atmos, and I know Andy was interested in hearing about my experience in Atmos because of the um, speakeasy with the other Andy Nelson. And unfortunately, for me, this is a case. Just as Tommy said, it's just a wash of things. And to me, and I I think Andy mentioned this in the speakeasy what he likes about atmos is it's better for quieter films because of the precision you can place things and to me it it was a wave of sound so i didn't get a strong sense of you know 
things being placed in specific places. It it was a, v- a very immersive experience, but when you think of things like the car chase, there's just so much going on visually to to pinpoint any one thing. Same thing with sound. It's it's truly an immersive experience, uh, but there was nothing that really stood out for me. I guess if I were to experience it in just a non-atmos, I might be able to give you a comparison to talk about sort of the the depth of the, the sound feel, but there was nothing specific that I could point out to say, wow, I really felt this. It was just again, sort of 360 wave of sound all, all around me. The only, uh, my, my audience did laugh. The, the loudest outburst was uh, from a guy I, uh, to my left about three seats. And it's when they're hanging out in H's sort of garage. And, uh, there's, there's, they're just talking, but on the wall, there's, there's two posters. Uh, one is like Will Wheaton, like some type of wanted poster, but on the other side, there's Mayor Goldie Wilson. And the guy saw yeah, out loud, I saw that. out loud, he's like, Mayor Goldie Wilson. That's awesome. <laughs> Didn't care that he was in an auditorium with, you know, a couple hundred people, but yeah, he just let everybody know he thought that was the funniest thing ever. And that man so was awesome. Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting too that we have that we have these kind of like half uh, empty theaters because I mean it's number one both Thursday and Friday it was number one and they're saying it made seventeen million here uh, here locally or in the U.S. and it's going to make sixty eight million worldwide just in the first weekend. That's what they expect. So it it seems odd because there definitely wasn't that there weren't any lines there wasn't any sort of clamoring to get in in uh, in my local theater yeah i'm curious about that i i guess i don't know maybe it's just playing on so many screens that uh, it's easy to get into like i don't know it's just a strange andy thing. that's my guess at least uh i you know los angeles sometimes is different than other towns but in my arc light that i go to it was playing every half hour on the half hour they wow. devoted so many screens wow. to it that wow. there's no way to the fact that the theater wasn't packed doesn't mean that people aren't going to see it so. Right, right. Awesome right. to hear. Awesome to hear. Well, uh, I think that uh, we've kind of talked a whole lot about it. Maybe it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Play your one. We are ready now. Done with our yammer. Now time to rank it on Flick Chart. And we'll see how it compares to Finest Hours and Child 44. Chugga, 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 chugga. Now it's time to rank it. Now it's time to rank it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Super Mario Brothers, y'all. <laughs> Flick Chart. That's just brilliant. Check out www.flickchart.com to try out what we're going to do here. The site provides a fun way to look at movies you've seen by creating a tournament-style stack ranking system that organizes movies of your choice into a very custom March Madness all your own. The movies we've talked about on this show can be seen ranked at flickchart.com slash TNRfilmboard. Where do we start? All right, first up, we have Ready Player One or Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. <laughs> Ready Player One. Yes, ready player ready one. Ready player one. I'm just going to tell you guys for 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 just uh, I guess nostalgia or no, for uh, for history. This is the first time that I've ever voted for BVS Doge. Wow. I like that movie more than Ready Wow-y. Player One. So, look at that. But yeah, but it doesn't matter cuz you guys chose Ready Player One. <laughs> All right, next up, Ready Player One or Fury. 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 Ready Player One. Sorry guys, Ready Player One. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Brad Pitt in a tank? Wow. Tommy okay. and Steve, you guys have to do uh, Rochambeau on this one. One, two, three. Rock. Paper. Okay, so Steve wins. So Fury wins. What? So Fury wins. I demand a revote. Fake news. Way to go, Fake Tommy. News. <laughs> <laughs> Ready Player One or Looper? 
Looper. Looper. Mm. Uh, I'm going to say Ready Player One. Because I don't love Looper. Yeah. yeah. I, I got... I. I it's, you don't love Looper? Uh, I don't love it. I don't love it. It's it's okay. Oh, Steve, Steve, no love looper. That's no, 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 love, no love. No love. Steve, no love looper. Steve, no. Steve, why no love looper? Okay, <laughs> the forehead. That's why Steve doesn't like looper. Yeah, there's. Oh, yeah, Steve, no, love looper. no idea. <laughs> okay, so, so ready and Tom. Um, yes. Yeah. Do your ready. Do your rock paper scissors, please. Okay. <laughs> okay. Ready? Are you ready? Oh, it's not you, JJ? No, oh, I guess I should do it because Tommy did it last time. Andy, count it down. I'll do it this time. All right. One, two, three, rocks. There it is. Okay. So oh, Ready you. Player One works. Ready Player One takes it. Yeah. Ready Player One or World War Z? Mm. World War Z. World War Z. Yeah, World War Z. Ready Player One or Spectre? Spectre. S- ready Player One. Ready Player me. One for me. What's Spectre? James Bond. The James the Bond. The latest James Bond movie. Oh, uh, Epstein. Oh, okay. So Ready Player One works. Ready Player One or Captain America Civil War? Captain America Civil War. Civil War, War. yes. Uh, I'll say Ready Player One, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Oh, Steve, no love looper. (laughs) That's going to be a new ringtone somewhere. Just what I was going to (laughs) say. Whenever someone's disappointed by something, we should say, Oh, Steve, no love looper. Oh, Steve, no love looper. (laughs) All right. Well, that lands Ready Player One at number 23 on our chart. 23 out of 68. Oh, so it's still in the top half. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, 66%. My So I will tell you that my letterbox ranking did change after talking to you guys about it. You guys had some great insights about it. I was super low on the movie coming out. I was a 2 coming out. I'm a 2.5 now, but I still don't like the movie. It still it still let me down. And I and I do believe that it was colored mostly by um, by how much I liked the book and how much I didn't get from the movie. So I'm 2.5 and, a half and uh, not like for me. Okay. I give it a three-star rating and a like, or love, or heart, or whatever symbol it is that we attach to that. Tommy? And I will give it a 3.5 and a like. And I will also give it a 3.5 and a like. Friends. Cool. So that's uh, a three... 3.125. So it'll it'll land at a 3 and a like on our letterbox. Gotcha. Well, where do we go from here? Next month, it's April, and we're going to see Beirut, which is, we're doing the show on my birthday, oh. which I'm super excited about because everything I always wanted was a political drama based on real-life events that's been criticized for its lack of accurate ethnic representation and being released on the anniversary of the massacre that started the Lebanese Civil War. <laughs> Happy birthday, JJ! <laughs> wow. <laughs> So I'm really excited <laughs> to talk about it. No, uh, no, I, I, I don't know or uh, am not particularly excited about Beirut. But that being said, I think we're actually set to have a real stirring conversation about sensitivity and accuracy and their role in entertainment and film because of all of the press that Beirut's getting. So uh, we're doing that show on April 14th. And so it should come out on your, uh, should be released to the public the week after in April. For the Mothership Show on TNR, Andy, you guys are still seeking revenge right yeah we're wrapping it up uh next week with the uh, with lady vengeance so it's uh, it's the last of the unofficial park chan wook vengeance trilogy awesome. very very cool thanks again to you guys for winding your way through another show here with me we'll meet you right back here next time uh thank you good night andy nelson ciao <laughs> get some rest tommy handsome will do thank you very much jj and i will catch you in the stream steve sarmento Hondo. <laughs> Thank you all so very much for listening here and reach out to us to tell us everything that we got wrong tonight on, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram because rock and roll stops the traffic. And remember, for as little as one buck per month, you can support us on patreon.com 
slash the next reel. Make sure to connect with us there and join our fun forest of film frolic. Woo! Fantastic. <laughs> At the next reel, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Till next. Here on the film board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Egger's tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. TheNextReel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to TheNextReel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 